One of the greatest ways to show reverence to the Lord is to listen to Him. Uh, and one of the greatest ways to listen to the Lord is just to open your Bible and to read and to listen to the voice of God as He's expressed Himself in the Bible. We want to show reverence to God in our church. It's the purpose of our assembly. And so one of the ways that we do that from time to time is we take a long section of Scripture and we just go passage by passage through the Bible in reverence to God, saying, what do you have to say to us this week, God? The passage before us this week is in the book of Matthew, as we have uh, for the last, uh, in the last year, been just working our way one section at a time through the book of Matthew, and we'll continue for a couple of more years if the Lord doesn't return. The Lord gives us the ability to do that. We're in Matthew chapter 9, and our passage before us this morning is verses 27 through 34. In Matthew chapter 9, and verses 27 through 34. If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 9, 27, we're going to read this together. I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence to God's Word as we read Matthew 9, 27 through 34. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed Him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when He had come into the house, the blind men came to Him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him to all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed, And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, meet with us as we believe you already have, and that you would continue to make our hearts tender today. Lord, in this time that we have, this rare and, and precious hour of the week where we gather all together on the Lord's Day morning, we ask that it would not be an empty ritual or a, a hollow tradition, but I ask you, Lord, that you would even right now begin to work in the hearts of people. Those that don't know you as Savior today would see how beautiful you are. Those, Lord, who have forgotten how beautiful you are would remember Those of us, Lord, who've lost our spiritual taste buds, we've lost our spiritual insight, we've lost our spiritual hearing, and our tongues are silent, that you would bring us to deep conviction in this time as we look at your word, that you'd make our hearts tender, God. I pray that people would confess their sin today. I pray that people that have gathered here, their hearts would be tender and broken and and eager to obey you. Lord, only you can do this kind of work. No talk that I could give, I I acknowledge, no talk that I could give could ever accomplish what only you can do. And, And I ask you, Lord, that you would work among the people today to save souls, Lord, and to restore us to yourself. And we ask this in the name that's precious to us all, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated. These are interesting stories, two little stories. Let's just go through them. Verse 26, 
the popularity of Jesus is spreading. And this is like a key thing. You're going to notice here, uh, in verse 26, it talks about Jesus' popularity spreading. In verse 30, he, he makes a reference to that because after he heals these guys, he tells them, don't go tell anybody. And then they immediately go tell everybody. Um, and then verse 31 says, the word spread around. And then verse 33 the, the people said, we've never seen anything like this in all of Israel. A reference to the popularity of Jesus, the power of Jesus. And it's, a, it, it's, it's aim, aiming toward the last phrase, which where the Pharisees are saying, um, he obviously has power. They couldn't deny that he had power to perform amazing miracles. And so they attributed that power to the devil. They attributed the power of Jesus to cast out demons. Maybe people that couldn't talk, talk. People that couldn't see, see. They, they attributed that power to the devil. So the section there, the section that we're looking at, the two little stories that we're looking at, really, the, the emphasis on them is the reaction of the people to who Jesus is. Now, the reason we know that, you can kind of see that when you step back from the trees and you see the forest. Because what, we are, what, we're, what we're seeing here in Matthew is that Matthew is arranged in order to present who Jesus is. It's to get in your face and say, this is who Jesus is. That's, that's what Matthew's doing. And the way he does it, and of course he's obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the way he does it is through, uh, there's kind of a rhythm in it. There's a beautiful kind of rhythm in the book. There are discourses or sections where Jesus is doing the talking, and so you get the teaching of Jesus from his own mouth. And in between about five discourses in the book of Matthew, you have narrative passages, which of course are a lot of fun, because narrative is a fancy word for what? Stories. So you have a series of stories, but they're not just like stories like modern storytellers just tell stories to entertain people. Never in the Bible. That's not the way it is. The stories in the Bible are always kind of like carrying the, the argument forward about who Jesus is. Matthew is really, and it's, we often say that, that the Gospels are um, miniature biographies of Jesus. So that, that's not the most accurate way to say it. Really, the Gospels are like big tracks. That's what they are. The Gospels are like big tracks. If you hung around Baptist Church for a while, you know what a tract is, right? Uh, it's like a religious pamphlet. It's a Gospel pamphlet. And, um, you, you know, when you get your tongue loosed because you really know who Jesus is, then you got this obsession to tell people about it. So sometimes you will... You know, when you're first saved, you're clumsy, aren't you? You just tell everybody, and you offend everybody, and you badger everybody. But then after you get to know the Lord and you grow up, you're really quiet. You don't talk about it anymore. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was like, I'm being mean today, aren't I? No, but you got this obsession. I, sometimes, I don't know, give them a DVD, give them a track, take them to a movie, do something. You've got you to gotta get the... If you know who Jesus is, there's something about knowing who Jesus really is makes you want to tell people who He is. If, if He's beautiful to you... You've got to tell people about it. If your heart is cold and you're far from God and you forgot about your salvation and what God did for you, then all of a sudden you get quiet and you don't tell anybody anymore because He's not that beautiful to you. He's not that fragrant to you. He's not that special to you. He's not that precious to you. He's not that fair to you. Your heart is cold. You're far from God. You need revival. You don't talk about Him anymore. But if you've had your eyes opened by Jesus, if you have your tongue loose by Jesus, if you've had your taste buds restored by Jesus, if the eyes are open, if you've been healed, you can't keep quiet about it. So you write tracts. God the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this God-inspired tract. Who Jesus is. It's in your face. Either you accept Him 
or you reject him. You say he's from God or you say he's from the devil. No space in between. That's what's going on here. And you see this real, real clearly, again, when you step back from the trees and you, you examine the forest. So let's do that a little bit. In chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew, Christ is presented as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, which is pretty amazing that the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, gave specific prophecies about Jesus, and he came and specifically fulfilled them. Matthew lays that out. That's a pretty powerful argument, wouldn't you say? Matthew claims that Jesus is born of a virgin. And, the, and he says in the Old Testament, says he would be born of a virgin. Matthew claims he comes from the Davidic line. The Old Testament says he would. Matthew is saying Jesus Christ is the Messiah you're looking for. He's Christ, the anointed one. He's, he just baldly says that very clearly in chapters 1 through 4. And then he comes and, and he has John saying Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And all the Jewish people would understand what that would mean. That Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He's not just shy at all about who, about who he's claiming that Jesus is. Then in chapters 5 through 7, we get to listen to this Jesus talk. We get to hear his teaching. He goes up on a mountain. He gathers his disciples. He gives what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And everybody would agree. Even some people who don't even know who Jesus is would agree that the greatest ethical teaching ever known to man is the Sermon on the Mount. But those of us who know Jesus, we know that the Sermon on the Mount was a lot more than that. Much more than that. Even maybe something different than that. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't just a talk that Jesus gave to try to get people to be nice. The Sermon on the Mount was a talk that Jesus gave to help people understand that without Christ they never could be righteous and what righteousness really looked like. So he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Then we get to chapters 8 through 10, 8 and 9. In chapters 8 and 9, again, you have this narrative section. We've been in there really for a few months together, kind of enjoying all those stories. And what are they all about? Well, the stories are almost all about healing and miracles and amazing things that Jesus did. In a way, they're kind of introduced in back in chapter 4. If you take your Bible and you look back in, 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 in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 4. Verse 23, it says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. That's a mouthful. And then you have this, again, in chapters 8 and 9, Notice these are all these are each these are all messages that we preached based on the sections in Matthew eight and nine, and again it's looking at the forest instead of going up really close and just seeing the one picture. Step back and look at what Matthew is saying here. Notice these things. In, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus heals a leper. He touches the untouchable. He cleanses and restores him. We call that message the Cinderella outfit. And maybe if you were here for that message, you remember why. Or you should go listen to it again just for fun. In chapter uh, 8, verses 5 through 13, he, 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 he heals people who are broken. He restores uh, broken cords. In chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, he even goes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. He's very special, isn't he? 
in Capernaum. It was a wonderful thing. And then in chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, he's healing and delivering many, many people. And there's this beautiful night scene where Jesus is, is healing. And then in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, he then challenges would-be disciples to full devotion. So in the middle, it's kind of like, here's, what, here's what's happening. You have story after story of different things that Jesus does to show that he's totally unique and nobody's like him. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. And people are following him. And then people come to follow him and he goes, hey, you can't follow me. You're not serious enough. Go away. Now back to the... So in other words, he says, you should follow me. You can't follow me. So he's challenging. He is just challenging people to understand who he really is. Challenging people to understand his absolute uniqueness that there never has been anybody like him. Never will be anybody like him. And if that was true then, it's still true. Then he goes on then in chapter 8. He's going across the Sea of Galilee and he's quieting what we believe to be demonically churned waters. He, he says, peace in the sea goes peaceful. But the devil doesn't quit. When he gets to the other side of the lake, he sends two demon-possessed guys. And the two demon-possessed guys are, challenge him and Jesus turns them into missionaries. And the people send him away. Jesus goes away. But tongue-in-cheek, he kind of leaves a couple of missionaries. And they go to work. Jesus says, okay, you want me to go away? I'll go away. But he leaves these guys behind whose lives have been completely changed. they got a story to tell. And they tell it. And, we, and if you recall, we were there. And we, we saw the archaeological evidence of a thriving Christian church because of the testimony of a couple of guys that got delivered from being demon-possessed. Maybe just one. There were two that were delivered. Did one go back? We don't know. The, the other pastor talks about one in particular, the, the, the Gadarene demoniac, we often call him, the guy who was demon-possessed in this area. Chapter uh, 8. Verses 28 through 34. Then you get to chapter 9, he heals and forgives a paralytic. Chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, he gathers ragamuffins together. Remember that? He recruits the tax collector, and he turns the tax collector into an apostle. They have a big meeting at the house. He brings all of his ragamuffin lost friends. They're starting to get saved, and they're starting to get changed, and their lives are turned around. And Jesus is saying, and this is really kind of rattling the religious establishment, and they're going, wait a minute, you know, we're, we think the quality of our disciples is going down. And Jesus is saying, well, you're not even my disciples. These are my disciples. <laughs> it kind of gets interesting. And then there's that passage where I took off my tie. Do you guys remember that? You, you didn't think I was done talking about that, did you? That was just the beginning. That was just the beginning. And where Jesus says, we're going to have to have some changes around here. Because we're not happy about how many lost people there are who don't know me. The religious establishment that we have in place right now is not going to reach those lost people. It cannot. It's an old wineskin. We cannot be satisfied with business as usual. And we kind of applied that to our church. Take the liberty to apply that to our church. We cannot be satisfied with a trickle, how, as beautiful as it is, the trickle of lost souls that God is sending our way. We cannot be satisfied that we've done all that we can to reach this gr great area that God has put us in. In such a desperate time, in such a time when everyone acknowledges that it's a difficult time and that there's very little hope in people's hearts, 
Our church sits in the middle of this with hundreds of thousands of people who don't know their right hand from their left. And God in His mercy has allowed you to build a great, beautiful building where everybody in the area knows where this is. We cannot be satisfied with an unchanged life and an unchanged church. We cannot be satisfied with business as usual. We cannot be satisfied if we have to break something. We've got to figure out how to get the gospel to people who need Jesus Christ. We cannot be proud. We cannot be satisfied. We cannot be satisfied with an unchanged life. We cannot be satisfied with an unchanged church. And Jesus is saying, new wine skins for new wine. Be, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be ready to change and do what needs to be done in order to reach people. And then chapter 9, verses 18 through 25, we use, this is our text last week. Jesus comes to the end here. He comes to a powerful climax, a conclusion by saying, and I have authority over not only darkness, not only demons, not only weather, but I have authority over our darkest enemy. I have authority over death. So you see what I'm saying? Matthew Chapters 1 through 4 says Jesus is Messiah, he's God, he's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Listen to what he has to say. We listen to what he has to say, and then he says, and look what he did. And when he says, look what he did, and then he says, now what are you going to do about that? Now that we know that Jesus is uniquely God, the only God in the entire universe, very God, a very God, never had a beginning, will never have an end, died for our sins, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to believe? Are you going to tell anybody about it? Is it going to affect your life? Are you going to receive Him? Are you going to follow Him? It's in your face. Now, you've got to understand, that's the most important question that any human being will ever face. Who is Jesus and what am I going to do with Him? That's the most important question any of us will ever face. I like to look at it like this. You might have a lot of questions about the Bible. You might have a lot of questions about, about um, uh, things that are in the Bible. You might have a lot of questions or maybe even doubts in your mind, even as you sit here in the Christian church today, and you might have doubts in your mind. I like to look at it like this. I've said it before. Imagine a big funnel here, and imagine you taking all your questions and all your doubts and all the things you ever thought about that you weren't sure what the answers were and put them in the funnel. And look down here at the bottom of the funnel where you have the little spout. That's Jesus. And what I'm trying to say is this, is in my little illustration, and that is this. You take all your questions. You take all your doubts. You take all the, the difficult philosophical questions that have ever plagued you since you were a little child or intellectual challenges that anybody has given to you. Take anything you can imagine. Put it in that funnel. Then you ask this one simple question. And here it is. Is Jesus Christ who he said he was? Because if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, that answers all the questions in your funnel. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then he was virgin born. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the Bible is true. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then there was a man who was swallowed by a great fish. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the, the sun did stand still for a day. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, all the miracles of the Bible are true because Jesus said they were. You don't have to answer all those questions. You have to answer one question, and that is, who is Jesus? And what do I believe about him? One man who came to faith in Jesus Christ, who was a well-known writer during World War II, did a series of radio addresses, and he posed that question to people. It was later put in a book. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. You can, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. Those who accept Jesus Christ as God and believe that He is who He said He was, come to personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, are delivered from their sin. This was C.S. Lewis. His dilemma was based, this what he calls the trilemma, based on the view that His words and deeds, that Jesus was asserting that He was God. Anybody with an English Bible can tell that He was. Jesus was claiming to be God. He claimed to have authority to forgive sins. He claimed to have always existed. And he claimed to, that his intent was to come back to judge the world at the end of time. And the New Testament record shows that people killed him because he claimed to be God. This he did indeed claim to be God. So you can't say, I believe in Jesus, but I get to define who he was. It's just a logical fallacy. You can't possibly say that. Jesus is a human figure, and he's a divine person. He was a human figure in history. And you have to come to grips with who Jesus was in history and accept his claim of who he was or deny of who, who he was. Now this is uh, the bearing on every person occupying a pew this morning. That's the most important question that you will ever ask yourself. Who is Jesus? Who do I believe Jesus is? This will change your life completely when you answer it, one way or the other. It was interesting. They did a study recently. And I read this in a book I was reading this week. They did a study about the, 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 the effectiveness of the church to make Christ known to children. And they showed pictures, for instance, to children. They showed a picture of Abraham Lincoln, and many children recognized the picture of Abraham Lincoln. They showed a picture of Ronald McDonald, and all of the children recognized the picture of Ronald McDonald. They showed a picture, a common caricature of Jesus Christ, and very few of the children recognized from the picture who Jesus Christ is. Folks, Our job is not to go out and get children to recognize an artistic caricature of Jesus. No, it's not. But our job is to go into this world and to make Jesus Christ known. You will never do anything that's more effective, more powerful, more impactful, more eternal than helping people understand who Jesus Christ is. You'll never improve on that. No one will ever come up with a better plan than just letting people know who Jesus is And there will be people that Jesus is beautiful to them and their lives will be changed. And there will be people who reject Him, who aren't ready to receive Him yet, and they're blind and they're ignorant and they're foolish and they don't know. Those people, unless there comes a time later when they understand who Jesus is, will be lost. When I was a little boy, it's 1969, I'm 10 years old, I'm at a revival in South Bend, Indiana. Grace Baptist Church, South Bend, Indiana. Guy preaches, I don't know who it was, pastor stands down in front, gives an invitation. I'm a believer already. I, 
I, I believed in Christ as my Savior as a little child, but I knew that God was working on my heart about something, and my mom was really thorough about helping me understand how much sanctification I needed. And I'm not kidding. I mean, she's just really good at that. And so as I sat there in that service, and I heard those guys preaching, I knew that I needed a deeper work of the Lord in my life. I'm 10 years old, but I knew that I needed a deeper work of the Lord in my life. I knew I needed, I don't know what you call it then, but I knew I needed deeper work of God in sanctification of my life. And so when they gave an invitation, I remember I asked my grandmother to step aside, and I went out and I walked down this aisle, this huge long aisle. And those guys that were given the invitation did not smile. I always thought to myself, am I ever a pastor and I give an invitation, I'm going to stand up there and smile. And not just glower at people, you know. There they were, man. They were serious guys. Given that invitation, I went forward and I'm like, I don't know what I need. You know, I need to get saved again. Or they go, no, you only get saved one time. And they, they sent me back. Some of you know this story. They sent me back to talk with this guy that was in a wheelchair. And it had this huge Bible. It was all worn out Bible. And he opens this Bible. I remember just looking at it. Wow, this guy's right. His Bible's all marked up. And he draws me over there close to him, and he says, Now, if you're a, they, they, they inquired about my, what I understood and believed about salvation, and, and based on the things that I said, they believed that I was saved. They said, You need to grow, and, you, and these are some things you need to do to grow. And I'll never forget this, because the fellow said, There are three things you do every day. This is very simple, but he said, You do these three things every day. If you do these things every day, you'll grow. When you stop doing these things, you're going to stop growing. He said, You want to read your Bible every day. Every day, a Christian should read his Bible. Because if you read your Bible, you're going to grow. He said, and that's God talking to you. God talks you through his Bible. Read your Bible every day. Second, he said, if you want to grow, he said, pray every day. That's you talking to God. God talks to you. You talk to him. Do you understand? Yes, sir. He goes, then the third thing you need to do is you need to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ. You need to let people know you're a Christian. And you need to ask other people to be Christians. You need to do that every day. Later on, I got a letter in the mail from Pastor Dale Mead. He was the pastor at the time. This letter is still in my file. June of 1969. Most of you were not alive then, right? Got this letter, and Pastor Mead writes this nice letter. He says to me, there are three things you need to do if you want to grow. If you do these things, you'll grow. When you stop doing these things, you won't grow. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to pray every day. You need to tell somebody about Jesus every day. I put the letter in my file. I've been to college. I've been to seminary. I've been to seminars. I've been to conferences. I have thousands and thousands of books. Even this week, I've, been, I've, I've probably read it in a dozen different books, just ways that this church could find of winning people who are lost and making Christ clear to people. And as I prayed this week and as I thought about that and thought about our church, I just can't imagine that the answer really isn't just going back to what Pastor Mead told me. A group of people that get in the Bible every day and listen to God's voice. A group of people who get on their knees every day and they talk to God. And a group of people who love Him so much they go tell other people. Just witness to people. Explain the gospel to people. You can, if your conscience allows you, I know some of you wouldn't want to go to a public movie theater. Many of you would. You could take folks to this courageous movie. What a powerful, clear, beautiful presentation of the gospel. There's just so many ways that we can get the gospel to people these days. It's interesting because later on, Grace Baptist Church, the church that I, I went forward there, 
Later on, my son would be called to be a youth pastor. He's a youth pastor in that church today. That pastor, Dale Mead, he left that church. He went to a church in Fremont, Michigan. He was there 18 years. And guess who was the pastor after him? Me. When you get involved in doing the simple things that God told you to do, you are going to have a very exciting, happy, enjoyable, thrilling life. I'm going to go out on thin ice. I've got to say something. It's just bubbling up in my heart, and I've got to say it, and I hope I don't get in trouble. Because I don't have permission, but I'm, I'm going there because I just am. We have that Get Acquainted class in my study on Sunday morning. And this morning we, we, we're in there and just having a wonderful time. You know, it's just kind of basics. It's the beginning stuff. Just having a wonderful time. And I just in my heart as I was in there just talking about the Lord and talking about the gospel, talking about how you can know you're saved, talking about baptism, just the basic stuff. In my heart was just like, it doesn't ever get better than this right here. It never gets better than this right here. And a couple that I asked them, I said, how'd you hear about our church? And they said, about a woman in our church, and I'm not using her name because I just don't have permission, but a woman in our church works with me, and she invited me. It's that simple. So a woman in our church notices there's another woman who has a tender heart. She invites her to our church. And now we're deep into it with this, this couple, this precious couple. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're into. I don't know what you do. If you're a great golfer or if you do ballet or if you're a great cook. or I, I, I don't care what you do. You don't do anything that's that as much fun, as thrilling, as important, as eternal. It's just simply helping people understand who Jesus Christ is. It absolutely changes people's lives and affects their eternity forever. And that is what this church has been about. And this is what this church must continue to be about until Jesus comes back. And so we ought to pray. If you're needy, if you, let, let me notice, show you some things you can learn from these guys in this story here. Um, they cried out in their need. Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. They cried out in their need. There's a cry of humanity. They weep, they're weeping because of their suffering. They're asking God for help. And we need to spend more of our, our time and our effort praying that God will awaken in people a sense of their need for Him. There's a passage that I'm going to be memorizing here. I'll read it to you in Colossians chapter 4. This is a prayer of Paul. Notice what he says in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Here's what he says. Meanwhile, praying for us, that God would open to us a door for the Word. Imagine borrowing this prayer for us. Hey, pray for me. So God will open a door for the Word. That would be a good prayer for you, wouldn't it? Hey, God, pray for me that God would open a door. I mean, hey, a lot of you, I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't know if I could take some hard-nosed sinner that doesn't want to hear about Jesus and, and I could convince him to be saved. That isn't what we're talking about. What we're talking about is you're praying that God would give you not a hard-nosed sinner, but a tender-hearted, penitent sinner that would say to you, can you explain this Jesus thing to me? And you're like, are you serious? Yeah, I can do that. There's just nothing in the world more fun than that. Paul's praying, pray that an open door for the Word speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest, as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, and let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. It implies that we're out there and we're mixing it up with people who have questions about God. 
And if you get up in the morning or you go to bed at night or you get up in the morning, you pray, God, open the door for the Word. Give me an opportunity. Somebody that needs to talk about you today, I think He will answer that prayer. I just don't think that we pray that prayer often enough. I think sometimes we lose our grip on how beautiful Jesus is. Sometimes we lose our grip on how life-changing Jesus is. And we get discouraged because we've shared with somebody who's kind of hard-nosed and they've rejected us. And so we kind of go back in our shell and we get into our materialism. We get into our uh, pleasure-seeking. We get into the cares of this life and they kind of crush us and we forget about. These guys had an awareness of their need was blindness. They cried out. They acknowledged who Jesus is. Called him Son of David, a messianic affirmation, recognition that he was Messiah. They had a foggy idea probably of what Messiah meant, as many people did, even the disciples, but they used this messianic designation for Jesus. If you have a need, you can learn from these blind guys. One, cry out to God in your need. Two, acknowledge who Jesus is. Three, don't ask for fairness. Don't ask for justice. Ask for... What did they ask for? Mercy is a great prayer. Don't go to Jesus and say, hey, you owe me. Don't even think about asking Him to give you what He owes you. You're toast if He gives you what He owes you. And so am I. We ask for mercy. And we remind Him His mercies are new every morning. He's like, have mercy on me. We can learn from these blind guys. They also were persistent. They followed Him all the way to the house. And they also believed. He asked their question. They affirmed their belief. He said, if you believe, they, they do. He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. You believe me, I'm going to... And then they went and got others. You see that in, the, the la- in verse 31. And when they had departed, they spread the news about them to all that country. At that time, they weren't supposed to do that. We are. They spread the news. And I think in verse 32, it may very well be the people that got the, the mute, demon-possessed guys that, were, that couldn't speak might have been the blind guys. They would have... This is a logical thing. that They... Would they, would these guys with these certain handicaps, if you will, have hung out together? I heard once of, uh, I was out calling, uh, I was actually calling out, uh, doing a funeral for a guy I hadn't met. So I talked to his daughter, and his daughter was one of these gals that's not very emotional, so she wasn't giving me anything to work with. And I'm like, well, i got to do a guy's funeral, and she's just giving me the bald facts. And it just, I'm thinking, how am I going to do a proper eulogy or funeral for this guy who I didn't know? And his daughter is just like kind of not giving me anything to work with. And so I'm listening. I said, did anybody else know him? And then she said, well, he had a lady friend. I'm like, oh, really? Tell me about that. She lives over here on this block. They spent a lot of time together. They did things together. They kind of helped one another. I'm like, okay. So I go around the block. I, I visit the lady friend. She's completely different. Man. She opens her heart and tells me all about this guy, tells me all kinds of details. But she said something I've always thought was kind of humorous. I, I think this is the way she said it. She said, you know, we really got along well together. Because, you know, I can't see well enough to drive, you know, but I can, I can drive. And he can't drive, but he sees pretty good. So we go out together, and he tells me where to turn. I'm like, are you serious with me right now? So here we are in this life, and we're just kind of stumbling through life, and one of us is deaf, and one of us is blind, and one of us can't speak, until Jesus comes in, and then he touches our tongue, and then he touches our ears, and then he touches our eyes, he gives us our taste buds back, he gives us our tongue back, he gives us our sight. Can I spiritualize and have some fun with this? He does all of this. It's really where Matthew was going with the argument. And they believed, and then they went out and got other people. And so the real question is, and if you haven't got this, you should have already ready, gotten this. 
The answer to the key question, you know, when you, the, remember the key question in these passages, these stories in particular, we ask the key question to understand, and this is the key question, remember, and that is why would Matthew and, and the Holy Spirit have put this story here? For the original audience, and, and then for us. Why is this story here? You should have gotten this already, because I've been kind of harping on it the entire time I've been talking, and it's this. He put the story here to kind of put in Bold contrast. There are people who attribute to Jesus the works of the devil, or the works of the devil to Jesus. But there are people who believe him, and when they believe him, their lives are radically transformed. And so, which are you? And, and, then, and then secondly, do you believe that? Let, let me give you some kind of concluding. Don't you love it when I say in conclusion? It's going to only take about 30 minutes to conclude this. All right. Fourth thing, just kidding. Fourth things. This one, you understand, don't reject or ignore or minimize Jesus like these people did. Like the Pharisees, because they had their, their own religious thing going, they didn't want Jesus cutting into that, they attributed to Jesus evil. I, 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 very few of you would do that, but you, you understand, it's, it's just as deadly to ignore him, it's just as deadly to erect a Jesus that's something less than the Jesus of the Bible. Number one, don't reject or ignore or minimize or make your own little plastic Jesus. Don't do that. Second, don't follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. This is probably the reason Jesus said, don't go tell anybody. He says, I don't want a popular movement right now. He said, don't go tell anybody right now because Jesus is going to do this in his own way. He's going to reveal his messiahship in his own way, in his own time. He didn't want just the people following because he'd done these wonderful things. The wonderful things were not the point. The healing of people was not the point. The raising of the dead was not the point. Who Jesus is was the point, you see. So a person, if you think about it, a person could have been fed and then go to hell. A person could be healed and then go to hell. But what they really needed was to be confronted with who Jesus is. So Jesus did the miraculous things that he did so people would know who he was because the main thing is... And guys, listen, that's still the main thing for you right now. You may be a kid that was raised in this church and you went to Awana and you went to youth group and you did all of that stuff, and that's great. The question still to you is this. I'm not asking you who your mama believes, who your mama believes in. I'm not asking you if your dad believes who Jesus is. That's irrelevant to you. I'm asking you, do you believe that Jesus is very God, a very God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the King of the universe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your only hope that you will ever have of eternal life? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins? Because you're going to go out into a harsh world, and if you don't believe who Jesus is, then that world's going to eat your lunch. That's a critical question for you. Third, so first, don't reject him or ignore him or minimize him. Secondly, don't follow him for the wrong reasons, like a fickle, shallow, ignorant following of a Jesus who, who really isn't. Third, receive him for who he really is. And then you will see, and then you will talk, and then you will live like you never did before. When Jesus comes in and he touches a life and he really touches a life, then the person then is alive. All of a sudden his ears are open, his eyes are open. He has taste buds again. You know, so I was like putting that in there because it's like past lunchtime already. But if Satan has his way in your life, you will not see, you will not hear, you will not speak, you will not live. You will not have spiritual taste buds. Fourth, and I think I made this clear already, make him known. Make him known. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, there's a passage I want you to listen to before we go here today. 
It's a beautiful one, but it says something kind of shocking. Verse 14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. There's, There's a lot behind that, but let's just cut to the simple part, and that is, those of us who know Christ are a fragrance of Christ to God. So, if you know Christ, you are a fragrance of Christ to God. Like, and that's like sacrificial imagery. There's this, there's this aroma wafting up to God that is Christ. It's, so, God looks at us through the righteousness of Christ, and there's a pleasing aroma. But there are other people involved. There are people in the text, we're going to see, that they're on their way to God, and there are people that are not on their way to God. And the people that are on their way to God, that fragrance is, would that be good to them or bad? If they're on their way to God, do you think they like that fragrance or not like it? They like it. If they're not on their way to God, do you think they like it or they don't like it? They don't like it. Now that kind of explains things, doesn't it? You start talking about Jesus and somebody sitting over here, all of a sudden they've got their hanky out. You go, what's up with that? You just said the basic, basically you said to somebody else they got their hanky out. Now they're like, I need Kleenex. And they're wiping the tears like, what's up with that? They, there's a fragrance of Christ to them. They know there's something to it. God's the one who activates that sense in a person, and there's a fragrance of Christ. But then there's somebody else over there, and they just hate you for that. Why is that? They're not on their way to God. God really only knows. Notice this, verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are, some of them are on the way to life, some of them are on their way to death. God only knows. Verse 16, to the one we are, the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So this week I've been praying and thinking a lot, a lot. Over the last number of weeks I've been praying and thinking a lot as I believe that God is stirring my heart and stirring our hearts to not just do business as usual in our church, to not just not go along with the traditions that we love and enjoy, to not just keep doing what we've been doing, and, and being satisfied with the trickle of lost people coming to know the Lord. But to be willing to take another hard look and say, God, what would you have us to do? It might mean that my schedule, i got a feeling my schedule is going to change, and I'm going to be spending more time with people who don't know the Lord. i got a feeling my prayer list is going to change, and it's going to get lots bigger, and there's going to be a lot of lost people on my prayer list. i got a feeling that there's going to be something I stop doing and something I start doing. Because, obviously, um, if we're going to be a fragrance, an aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing, then we have to be among those who are perishing. And I could talk a long time about that, but I will not do that right now. The idea of this is this. When Jesus touches you, you will see as never before. And when Jesus delivers you, you will speak as never before, as these men did. And, and, and so, of this candle in the office... And I got it from somebody else who didn't particularly like it. It's beautiful fragrance. People will come to my office and they'll say, wow, that smells so good. It's like, you know, how, how, can, how come your stomach doesn't growl? It smells like food, you know. And, and, and Hope walked in my office this morning. I was burning it. Hope walked in my office and says, it smells like heaven in here. But I happen to know that exact same candle makes another person sick to their stomach. So when she's working in the office, I can't burn it. But I'm not going to say if it's bee or sandy, because that would be like personal, and I, I don't ever say stuff like that. But it's not bee. But anyway, um, she's like, can, I, can, you, can, you, can you not burn that? Because 
I, I, I'm going to throw up. You know, she didn't say it quite like that. Well, that analogy breaks down very quickly, of course. But Jesus never does. He is the only way that anyone ever will be free of the sin that so destroys lives. And we believe that here, don't we? And um, let's not make it too complex. Let's keep it simple. Maybe I, maybe I could just leave you with this idea. Why don't you open up your Bible every day this week and let God talk to you? And why don't you get down on your knees every day this week and you talk to him? And while you're talking to him, why don't you say to him, hey, if there's anybody I can tell about you, nudge me and I'll talk. Maybe you're just not Billy Graham and it's really hard for you to do all of that. Maybe you could begin by a simple invitation to church. You bring him here, I'll talk him to death. Amen? I'll talk him to life. If Jesus is fair to us, if he's beautiful to us, that's the way it will be. Let's express our worship to God by singing this beautiful hymn about the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, fairest Lord Jesus. Pastor, come and lead us.